0: Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Margaret Atwood, a writer who I'm sure needs no introduction, and indeed it would most likely take up most of the podcast if I was to list all the books she's published and awards that she's won. All I will say is that she's the author of more than 40 works, including fiction, poetry, and critical essays, and her books have been published in over 35 countries. She's twice won the Booker Prize, most recently only last year when her novel, The Testaments, was awarded joint winner. Welcome to Our Shelves, Margaret. It's an incredible honor to have you here today, especially as I can only imagine that your your schedule must be particularly busy right now. So thank you for finding the time for us.
1: A pleasure, as always.
0: When I've spoken to other Booker Prize winners in the past, they always talked about the year following their win as something of a sort of whirlwind of publicity. And I'm wondering how much the pandemic has disrupted this for you. Has it been very different this time around when you won it first time?
1: Well, I'm quite a lot older.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But have you had to cancel lots of publicity plans?
1: Uh, We have had to. um, Yeah, we have. And we've had to relocate things. We've had to shove events along to next year. Um, I think that's happening for everybody. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of talk in the book world about how to keep bookstores going and what we can do to help. And uh, it has been really a time of working things out the best way that you can. Yeah. So it's been improvisation and and, uh, so forth, but to be fair, I had a honking humongous amount of publicity for the testaments <laughs> before the Booker. And uh, I know that Bernardine Evaristo, who was my co-winner, has had a very busy time. Uh and she's right there in the UK, so uh she was she was in, in a way more accessible but also because she'd had less publicity before winning it she got more publicity after winning it so things even out
0: yeah this is nicely balanced out between the two of you then
1: yeah
0: (laughs) has it been quite um were you looking forward to doing all the publicity or is there an element of uh it's it must be quite it must be quite tiring to have to do all the touring afterwards as well and keep talking about the book for such a long time
1: yeah but I, i i felt that i'd really kind of done that quite a bit already so you you couldn't say oh Oh, uh, people haven't heard about this book. Let's let them know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's very true. There was well, a huge not that the history. case. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the kind of, yeah, it's certainly the novel that everyone knew about whether they'd read it or not. So
1: that's yeah.
0: um, So, as I said, this podcast, we are diving into the sort of your cultural background, the things that uh, make you tick on a daily basis, and some of the things that have been with you for quite a long time. Um, so, I want to start by asking you what books are currently on your bedside table right now?
1: Well, um There's usually about fifteen of them, and uh, they can range and everywhere from murder mysteries to um, books on uh, science and history, so those kinds of things. And then there's another pile that is books on, I, I'm thinking of tweeting. So those are two different sorts of piles and um what am I, what am i doing there's a there's a series in french uh called les, les rois les rois Maudis, uh, which actually dates back to the 70s and was one of the inspirations for game of thrones and it's about the uh, 14th century in france when uh, various successors to the f- throne were interpoisoning each other and <laughs> murdering each other in towers and things like that. So it's really increased my French vocabulary. Imagine. <laughs> such as that, yes, such as that his intestines were rolled out and burnt on a brazier of hot coals. <laughs> you know, you don't get to say that in everyday life, <laughs> usually. So I, I do that at and before going to sleep, on the theory that my French vocabulary will be increased, although possibly not in ways other people might wish. You know, they don't necessarily want me to be saying, good morning, how are you today, and did you know that so-and-so got his intestines rolled out and burnt on a brazier of of hot coals, making a (laughs) terrible smell in French? (laughs)
0: And how do you decide which of the books go on the pile that you're going to tweet about and which uh, don't make well, it? Well, right
1: first now? of all, I, I haven't—if I haven't tweeted them yet, but have had the intention to do so—then they're on that pile. Um, but I, I think usually with the with the Twitter, you you uh, uh, you put up things that you think maybe other people might find of interest. So here's one. I might as well do it right now. So. This is called The Swallowed Man and it's by the same author called Edward Carey who wrote a book about um, Madame Tussaud of the wax works and her life and times which were very interesting and that book was called Little. But this book is about, do you know Pinocchio? Mm -hmm. So his maker gets swallowed by a whale and this book is about his life inside the whale, which I think is perfect for a lockdown. You know, <laughs> you're know, inside the whale. You can't get That's out.
0: a worse lockdown than most people are experiencing. <laughs> so it makes you feel good about being stuck in your flat, basically.
1: Yes, yes. The whale doesn't have any windows. There's <laughs> a supply of food, but, you know, and some candles. But, um, but not any windows and no, no other people. So, that kind of thing. Here's another one. Here's uh, Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder by Julia Zorankin, putting that up there. Um, and then there's this one over here, which is called How Long Till Black Future Month. So, this is a black sci-fi writer. So it's a take on Black History Month. So they Black History Month, How Long Till Black Future Month. And uh, it's N.K. Jemison. Those are short
0: stories, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they're short stories and I think some sort of essays and things. Uh, so, so it's always a mix. And um, that is what things are like. And if I showed you my floor, you would see, you would see that there are books all over the floor. I want to see my floor.
0: How many of the books on your bedside table, the ones you want to read, are they books that you've bought for yourself? Are they books that you've been sent by um, other publishers?
1: Mix. Definite mix. Yeah. So some of them I order. In fact, I have a shipment due um, in the next couple of days of books that I've ordered. And some of them are books that I've been, you know, meaning to read. Yeah. You know, meaning to read. And uh, some of them are books that I'm in the process of reading. But let us just mention one called Successful Aging. Mm. So I, one of my friends said, you have to read Successful Aging. I said, but I've already successfully aged. Why do I have to read? <laughs> oh, yeah, I really have to read this. So I've, I plowed in and I've, I've gotten up to about the part where you start to lose your mind. And, um, and I, I, I ground to a halt. Uh, but I will continue on and find out what bad things are going to happen to my toenails. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of it's called successful aging, but I'm afraid it's 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 not all good news. <laughs> oh dear! It sounds uh I don't know. Do you often
0: put things down when you're halfway through them because you just can't bear to finish them, or are you one of those people? Well, who I'm
1: to a to start. I am a peaker. I confess it. I peek at the end. Um, if I'm really getting sort of bogged in the middle, uh, I will uh, look at the end to see how it comes out. Okay. But I haven't looked at the end of successful aging yet because because nobody gets out of this alive.
0: I was going to uh, say, I think <laughs> the end of successful aging is, uh, is <laughs> I think we can all imagine what that is. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I'll recommend an old book of mine, which is quite a lot of fun. It's by, it's by, by a poet undertaker. Okay. called Thomas Lynch, who inherited an undertaking business uh, from his dad. And uh, he goes into the ins and outs of being an undertaker, and he has a great thing that he says in his introduction. He's also a poet. Uh, he says, when I was little other children would ask me, why is your dad called an undertaker? And he would say, because he's the one who takes them under. Said, so, But that isn't the reason. The reason is that it's an undertaking, so it's an agreement. He says, I'm the one who, if you phone me in the middle of the night, I come.
0: Wow. Which
1: I think is quite a lovely way of putting it. Yes. Uh, So on that cheerful note, let's move (laughs) on to the next (laughs) topic.
0: (laughs) Well, on the topic of, uh, of reading, though, can you tell me about a recent article that you've read that has made you think?
1: Yes. So... One um, I've, I've picked out of many articles that have made me think, it's called um, History Will Judge the Complicit and it's by Anne Applebaum and it was in the Atlantic Monthly and it's about why do people collaborate with totalitarian regimes or authoritarian regimes? Why do they go along with them? And uh, she takes the history of two men in the former USSR. They've had the same formation, they had the same education, Uh, they were the same age. One of them became a KGB person and the other one became a dissident. So what is the difference and why do people go along? What are the excuses that they use? And then she applies that to the Republicans who ought to know better Uh, who have been going along with the more outrageous excesses of Mr. Orange. Mm.
0: I was thinking, um, I was looking at that article and um, thinking, it reminded me obviously of the way that you explore the Aunt Lydia character in The Testaments. Exactly,
1: Um, that's why I was so interested in it. because. Right, I wondered uh, if that was the case. Yeah, exactly, and of course, writing The Testaments, I... I delved into the histories of, of people who had either been uh, dissidents who had worked against such regimes from within, and also the histories of people who had gone along with them uh, under one pretext or another. So either they were true believers, they were furthering their career, they were scared not to, or they, they said that thing that we all say to ourselves sometimes, well, I can do a lot more good if I stay in. Hmm. I
0: thought also what was so fascinating um, or one of the many things about that article was when Applebaum asked she sort of poses the question it's much more interesting to ask why do people resist or go against a regime than it is to ask why they you know go along with it right because going along with it is so much easier
1: yeah it's easier until it isn't so with with Stalin it was easier until you got purged (laughs) yeah it
0: does present problems further down the line but i think it's it's a it's something that's quite particularly interesting to consider now because you hear i feel like i hear constant sort of refrains from people saying oh you know if i'd or people like to think you know if they'd been there at certain points in history they would have been the ones to speak up they would have been the ones to stand up and say something
1: well, and but the, the reality in real a totalitarian regime you get shot right so uh, so that, that they don't i mean Yes, that's what happens. And when I published The Handmaid's Tale, people said, well, why didn't they this? Well, why didn't they that? And I said, well, here's the history of some people who did do this and that. And they ended up hanging on maid hooks Mm -hmm. um, or shot in the back of the head. So so that is the difference between um, what we um, like to call democratic governments and and really serious authoritarian totalitarian regimes i expect you saw the death of stalin yes a movie that was presented as a sort of black comedy so that i guess people would watch it because if you had presented it as reality which it was Mm -hmm. uh, it would just be so dark
0: when you're reading a piece like apple bombs and um And obviously, it makes you sort of think back to what you've done in in some of your fiction. Does it make you feel like other people are sort of catching up with what you've already seen further down the line? No, no.
1: no. People have been people have always seen this. Mm. (laughs) It's just that their seeing comes in and out of focus for the general public. Uh, I put nothing into *The Handmaid's Tale* or the Testaments that hadn't already happened somewhere, sometime. So naturally, I was drawing on the work of lots of other people who have been delving into this kind of thing for years and uh, Amnesty International, ever since its beginning has been has been very uh, focused on these kinds of things, so has index on censorship, and so has pen International, but in particular um, in regards to writers but uh, Amnesty is, is general and Index on Censorship is looking at censorship, which is one of the hallmarks of authoritarian regimes. They get rid of any contrary opinion. And that is what uh, the present uh, incumbent in the United States would do if he could. You'll notice the, the attacks on, on news media. Yes. Uh, so that that's one of the things they do. And there's a list and it, it doesn't vary much. So you shut down opposition, you make uh, your television show the only one, if you like, and um, Gilead and The Handmaid's Tale and, and The Testaments goes all the way and just prohibits reading for for a certain group of people and that's been done too.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, something a little bit lighter, perhaps, for the next question. I want to find out about a film, a song, or a TV series
1: that you've been enjoying lately. Let's see, what have what have I been looking at? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really stuck in TV watcher, and of course, I haven't been able to go to quotes the movies, uh, but I but I've been watching. Um, period detective series. So, Miss Fisher's murder mystery set in Australia in the 20s. Great mm. clothes. Uh, and she, She's very resourceful. She has this little gun that she tucks into her garter. Uh, so, I like watching her climb up walls in her flapper dress.
0: <laughs> Are you a fan of more uh,
1: traditional sort of golden era of crime novels? Oh, uh, I, being the age I am, I was there. At this <laughs> <laughs> so Agatha Christie, sure. And if you read Agatha Christie in, in series, you can you can go from the the time when people had country houses with lots of servants and the butler did it, uh, to you know then they get serviced flats and they only have somebody coming in once a week to clean. So you can see sort of the decline of that that class, all done through Agatha Christie. But there's a very excellent production of And Then There Were None Mm -hmm. uh, that you can watch on TV, which I have, I mean, you can get it on Netflix or Amazon or one of those things. Um, And Hercule Poirot, I'm watching Hercule Poirot uh, recently. And um, I used to read him to my mother when she was blind and do the accents. Oh, really? And, uh, and change the plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then Hercule Poirot went into the pantry and drank half a bottle of brandy. No, 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 that's wrong. <laughs> she would know when you were deviating from the official she, plot. She like. think it was funny. I it was
0: <laughs> do you find uh, do you find these things quite I mean, everyone talks about Agatha Christie obviously as a sort of cozy crime. Is that what you are getting maybe out of um something like Miss Fisher's murder mysteries?
1: Yeah. Um partly, but partly I just like to see how they're doing the sets and design. Because um, the period piece. Because of the period. And and of course no period actually ever looks as good as it does when somebody's making a TV show about it. I I look at for instance, the '50s things done about the '50s, it it didn't look that good. Sorry, <laughs> it just didn't. Uh, you know, if people were not that color coordinated. Um, and of course, any period there's always stuff left over from what came before and pieces from different. Um, but Hercule Poirot is flat. You know, it's perfect mm. sort of Art and Deco '20s '30s
0: yeah they're beautiful in those um oh, well, I think they're old now, but not that old in the whole scheme of things, but some of the adaptations they did and and uh, with David Suchet and them, and he lives yes. in these beautiful, beautiful kind of art deco apartments here in London, exactly. which are very enviable, I think
1: yes, and and beautifully furnished and very well lit, and of course, in real life, they'd probably be kind of falling apart, and people would have redone them into something else the way the way things happen, yeah, um, but that's enough of my guilty. Uh, television watching do you describe would you describe it as a guilty pleasure oh yes it's completely (laughs) guilty (laughs) I should be (laughs) watching you know very serious things Um, but I think there's enough very serious things in my life
0: yes I think there's a point of I don't know I find the whole concept of guilty pleasure is quite an interesting one that um what what people decide to pour, put into the guilty pleasure category is always quite telling, I think, about individuals.
1: Yes. Well, with a lot of people, it's food. Yes. <laughs> I feel no guilt about food whatsoever.
0: But what is it about that? Is it because you think you should be doing something that's more, I don't know, yeah, more serious, more informative than just Probably.
1: watching? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I should be doing something more like what people might think I should be doing.
0: <laughs> but in reality, you're actually at home watching Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> yeah, she has a very nifty little flying a plane outfit.
0: Oh, really, I feel like I've got to watch this now just for the costumes alone, regardless uh, yeah. of anything
1: else. Yeah, well, yeah, they are quite beautiful. Um, okay. And and who who knew all that was going on in Australia?
0: Yeah, it's the uh, no, it's something I haven't watched, and I am I'm, I'm a big fan of those, the sort of golden era of crime. So I will give it a watch. Thank you for the recommendation. Well, she has
1: a smoldering quasi romance going on with the with a policeman.
0: Mm, makes it even better then.
1: Well, he, he keeps resisting her wiles. She's got lots of wiles, <laughs> but we know he's going to give in in the end. <laughs> How far through it are you? Are there lots of seasons? I've, I've done them all. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, now we've done that and I'm on to, and I'm on to, uh, uh, Hercule Poirot
0: Fair enough going back to the back to the classics Belgian, uh,
1: thank you. not French <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm. um, Our shells will be back in just a moment Cool Fact Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Margaret Atwood about the concept of guilty pleasures and the golden era of crime fiction. Um, Margaret, for your next question, we've asked you to pick a photograph that you treasure. Could you describe it to me and tell me a little about it, please?
1: So I've got two for you. Oh, brilliant. That's me, and that is my daughter, aged about um, four. And uh, it was taken in... Um, Central Park when I was on a book tour because I used to take her on book tours for how how, till she got how old 32 Um, no (laughs) (laughs) Uh, till she got in school okay Uh, so about like that and And when
0: roughly was that one taken what sort of era are we talking uh, about
1: 1980 okay so which book 1980 Oh, uh, whatever book it was, I wouldn't have to go back and look. So probably it would be Too have many been, to publish. Alas. <laughs> so, Before <laughs> Handmaid's Tale and What Outfit Am I Wearing? Um, she has a very cute little raincoat on, you can see. It's
0: lovely. I love that.
1: And I have some sort of a shawl or something.
0: Would it have been um, either bodily harm or murder in the dark? Bluebeards, probably bodily
1: harm, bodily harm. Bodily yeah, harm. Okay. About like that, probably. Nice. So this one. So that's my dad. Wow. That's Northern Quebec. He's cleaning fish that we have caught, and the fish would have been bass, and I took that picture.
0: Ah,
1: <gasps> it's beautiful. The reflections in the
0: lake are astonishing. Oh, were you quite young when you took this? Because you have the sort of The dimensions are perfect, that his head is just under where the edge of the reflection is.
1: I would have been probably about 13 or 14. I I think it's luck that it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Uh, So you can see see his his knife. He always had this knife. That's the, they were called hunting knives.
0: That where you were living at the time.
1: Uh, We were living there in the summers, but that is a a separate expedition that we were all on. I I had my cousins with me at that time, so uh, there were five uh, cousins. So my brother, myself, and three older cousins all went on this uh, trip to this particular lake, which was known for being good for bass fishing.
0: Wow. And when you see that photo today, does it sort of bring back all the memories of being there at the time? Or what does it evoke for you? Do you remember your father?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we do with with memories and time is we leave out the mosquitoes. That's true. So idyllic, but there were mosquitoes. I'm just letting you know. Um, So, yeah, so when time when we're in it does not usually have the... uh, sort of golden retrospective glow that it has when you're thinking back on it because if you're a fairly optimistic person you forget that it was it was hot, there were mosquitoes or uh, the fish smelled, you know, all those things. <laughs> so if you want me to really go into into time, I'm afraid I do it quite thoroughly. Oh really? Well yeah, all the details. Okay. When you look at that
0: photo though, do you get the sense of I don't know, is there a real uh sort of visceral sense of being back there then?
1: Well, I I I can I can do that, but that isn't typically what people do when, when they're remembering. No. Anyway, my dad was great. I look at it, I think he was a great guy. Um, I'm glad I did those things um at that I did, even though there were mosquitoes. And the fish melt. <laughs>
0: That should be a motto for life. I'm glad I did the things I did, even though they were mosquitoes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think you could
1: write that quite large.
0: <laughs> on to the next question then. What's the book that you always recommend to friends?
1: Okay, the book I always recommend to young writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recommend different books to different friends, depending on their reading interests. Yes. But the one I always recommend to... Young writers is called the gift, and it's by Lewis Hyde, and it's published in the UK by Canongate, and it is about the gift economy. So I recommend it to writers, not because it tells you how to write, it doesn't, um, but because it tells you where the arts stand in relation to the way we exchange things. So. We live in a money economy um, pretty predominantly but it is not the only economy that human beings have ever um, come up with, how you exchange things. The other economy is the gift economy and it works in quite a different way. So uh, the arts belong in the gift economy uh, in their origin. So if you are an artist, you are receiving a gift you are working with your gift. Uh, in order to eat the cheese sandwiches that you need to survive, you have to somehow make money. Um, if you're a writer, your, your gift, that is the book that you have created using the gifts that you have received from other writers down through the ages, uh, you take this gift and it has to go through the, the valley of the shadow of the commercial transaction. That is, it has to get published and be in a bookstore. Uh, and then the reader acquires it, either that way or or through a library or somebody gives it to them. Um, and then it turns back into a gift if the reader likes the book. If they throw it across the room and say, this is trash, then it just, it, it remains inert in their hands, but but when they're reading it and if they like it it turns back into a gift so nobody ever says to an author that was really worth the the 1995 i paid for it <laughs> it's not what they say they say thank you for writing this so in return for the gift that they have received they give you a gift which is the thank you it's a sort of the the minimal gift that you can give Uh, But it also explains um, how gifts work, the downsides of gifts. You know, if you receive a gift, you owe something. If you buy a motor car, you don't then owe something to the person who sold it to you. You've already done that part. You gave them the money. That's it. Goodbye. You need never see them again. If somebody gives you a motor car, that's a whole different thing. And you better pay attention to who's given it to you and why. Why? and what you might owe them in return. So you know that whole thing that goes on around Christmas presents? Yeah. I gave them a great big bottle of champagne and they gave me a pocket handkerchief. <laughs> yes, I know that well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, we so, so, so therefore you need to understand the gift economy and where writing and the arts fit into it. Um. So where do where do writers stand in relation to money? and that's very worth knowing. and i've I've written a bit about that myself because there there are only four arrangements that you can have: a good book that makes money, a bad book that makes money, a good book that doesn't make money, and a bad book that doesn't make money. And of those four, you can live with the first three. Just don't want the fourth. <laughs> you don't want to have written a bad book that doesn't make money. Uh, but whether a book makes money or not has nothing to do with whether it's good. Those are two separate things. And young writers really need to understand that.
0: Did um, when did you first read uh, this book, and did it make you think differently about? the relationship between money and writing in your life.
1: Yeah. I first read this book a long time ago because I was at one of those um, summer literary gatherings um, in Port Townsend, Washington state. And the author was there. So Lewis Hyde was there and he gave me his book. Oh, he gifted you the book. Okay. Gift to me of the book, the gift. Wow. And down the line, the reciprocal gift that I made to him was that I took this book to Jamie Bing, Uh, actually at the Frankfurt Book Fair when some people were having dinner and a few drops were taken. And uh, I made him swear on the candle that was on the table that he would read this book.
0: Oh, did you gift him a copy in the process? I did. (laughs) Okay.
1: And he did read it and he did publish it uh, because he got very enthusiastic about it. Yeah. So everybody who reads it gets pretty enthusiastic about it. It explains stuff to them about their lives. If you're an artist, it explains something to you about your life.
0: Right. And is it the kind of book that you recommend other people buy or do you have you actually given it yourself to lots of people? Over the- I, 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 I,
1: I keep a number of copies on hand. And like the ancient mariner, I give them to the wedding guests that I think need to hear the story. <laughs> the people are saying, "I've written five books and I'm not making any money." That you need to read the gift. Here okay. it is.
0: And have people come back to you since and said, oh, "You know, that's... this it.
1: is the most amazing book I've ever <laughs> read." I explained everything about my life. Okay, so I'm, I'm. I may be giving it too much of a of a push, but if you are a young writer who is conflicted about your relationship to money and art, you need to read this book.
0: Well, I feel it is a topic that a lot of young writers are trying to um, negotiate and
1: write about themselves and talk about a lot. So, uh, Well, how do you make a living? That—that That, that yeah. is the question. So when I announced at the age of um, 16 or 17 to my mother, uh, a practical person, I said that I was going to be a writer. I think she probably blanched bitter tongue and then said, uh, well, if you're going to be a writer, you better learn to spell. (laughs) And I said, other people do that for me, and they have. Uh, But the other question was, how do you make a living? And I was quite happy to have day jobs because I knew I would have to, uh, and I did have them. Um, But there's only, uh, I think, five things that you can do. You can you can have money. You can marry money. You can have a patron. So that can be the pope, a king, a duke, an arts grant organization, a prize-giving <laughs> outfit. Those are all patrons of the arts. Um, you can have a day job. And the question is, will your day job exhaust you so much that you Um, won't have any energy left for writing, and that can happen too. I've had some pretty scungy day jobs. Um, Or you can go to the market, which means um, selling your books Mm. and making enough money thereby. Uh, And a lot of people, you know, they get jobs, maybe copywriter. Um, If you become a journalist, that will eat your life. Uh, You might get a book out of it, but it's unlikely to be a novel. It'll probably be a book that comes out of your journalistic experiences.
0: Was it a great relief to you when you were able to just work on your writing and not have to support yourself with a day job? Uh,
1: yes, but but I still had, I did odd jobs. So I right. did job work in, the, in that area. So I did film scripts. I did some TV script writing. I did that kind of thing. Um And, of course, the market was developing for giving talks, going around to universities giving talks, which at first were not paid very much at all and um, still probably aren't much in the UK. But uh, universities in the uh, United States, not so much in Canada, would, would have endowment funds in which they would actually pay you money to go around uh, saying the things that you'd been saying at the dinner table for some time. <laughs> so all of those ways of, you know, eking out a living. But we, we lived on a farm for ten years uh, and we were able to keep it going. We were able to keep the writing going and and um, even the farm going by, by doing these kinds of odd jobs. Mm. So I had worked at a university Um, and luckily I got out of that world because it is a very, uh, the smaller the cheese, the more the mice fight over it. Uh, They're usually kind of contentious um, places.
0: Another question about books. Uh, Can you tell me about a book or books that have made you think about feminism in a new way?
1: I have a honking big library of Um, second wave feminist and through the decades other uh, books. So I'm going to mention two uh, that I will pluck from this huge collection and I'm wondering who to give it to because there's some pretty interesting things in it. so So Marilyn French wrote a honking ginormous history of women. It's called From Eve to Dawn. And she couldn't get it published. This is in the 90s. It was this big. It was huge. Uh, And she had covered everything, including, did you know that right after the Russian Revolution, there were some cities in the USSR that decided that sex was a good? It was a good. And therefore, they made it a crime for any woman to refuse to have sex with a Communist Party member. Nice try guys. It didn't last long. But <laughs> Wow. I did not wow. know. Wow, no. Well there's all kinds of things in there that you that you didn't know and neither did I. So I I knew Marilyn and I've heard of her um, difficulties in getting it published. So I said divide it into three volumes. Genius okay. idea. And then uh, We did get it published in the three volumes, and I think then it was condensed somewhat and published in one volume, but if you can get the whole three volumes, that's the excellent reference work of weird, unusual stuff you may not have known about, plus all the stuff that you did know about. Um, so, So that's one suggestion. The other one was a book that came out and it's by Phyllis Chesler who was part of that second wave women's movement in New York and it is called uh, A Politically Incorrect Feminist. Um, And it will be very encouraging to people to know that these these women fought all the time. (laughs) They just fought all the time about all sorts of different things. And it's encouraging to know that because you you come across these fights going on now and you think, "Oh, they shouldn't do that." Um, but in any movement, people fight. it's It's not a new thing. It's what happens. And she goes into the fights and the makeups and what they agreed on, what they didn't agree on and 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 also, therefore, it's okay to have a range of opinions on these subjects. Uh, and I have nothing against a range of opinions, as long as the opinions are based on fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so opinions that are just, this is my opinion because it's what I want to be true. I'm not interested in those. I'm interested in, in fact, fact-based fact views. And I'll throw in from left side, uh, Zvetlana Alexievich. I'm pronouncing that wrong, it's called The Unwomanly Face of War, and it's the role that women in the Soviet Union played during World War II, and their opinion. She, she does interviews with them. Uh, rain, again, a huge range. Uh, some of them said that the worst thing was that they had to wear men's underwear, and it was so uncomfortable and scratchy. Um, but you, you will find out all sorts of things in this book, and... One of my favorite USSR things of World War II is the Night Witches. Do you know about the Night Witches?
0: No, I don't think I do.
1: They were a squadron of female airplane fighter bombers. And because they were women, they gave them these crappy little um, plywood airplanes. But the thing about the crappy little plywood airplanes was that they didn't make much sound so that the night witches could swoop in under radar and you didn't know they were coming and they did it at night and then you would have all these bombs being dropped on you by the night witches and it was the Germans who named them the night witches because they would come out of nowhere in their crappy little plywood planes and bombs the crap out of you (laughs) Anyway, talk about heroic. I love the Night Witches. If you look up the Night Witches on Google, you will find on Wikipedia, you will find things about them. Mm-hmm. So The Unwomanly Face of War, uh, recommended read about World War II and women's part in it in Russia.
0: Yeah, I've read that book, and it's an astonishing account of um, just real lives being forced to do things that are, you know, would seem... Impossible to so many of us, but then put in the moment, you just do it. And I think the thing that stuck me for that was sort of the the sort of weird equality of it all that actually put women in the position of men, and there is literally no different, you know, difference between them. They will do the things that we expect men to do as well.
1: Well, if you're at the if you're at the trigger end of a gun, you're basically firing a gun. Yeah, you're not going eek a gun. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Also struck by the fact that the three books that you've chosen, they're all. Obviously, the uh, Marilyn French's uh, history of sort of womankind is slightly different, but you're talking very much about um, learning from people's, from sort of real stories and, and and these writers' individual perspectives as well. Has that always been something that you've been looking for when you're interested in a subject? I mean, feminism as a subject is obviously huge, but you seem to be suggesting that we can learn things from from learning about
1: people's real lives, right? What's it for if it's not about real lives? Mm. You know, is it is it to be a theory in a university, or is it to have an impact on real lives? And I'm all for impact on real lives, which is why we launched the Testaments with Equality Now, the international organization that works for structural change in laws. Uh, so, if it's if it's just theory. Uh, that may advance the careers of some people at universities but it but it's not impacting life on the ground
0: mm.
1: so I'm all for impacting life on the ground, so equality now and there's another thing I support which is called after me too um so you can look look up that one as well um so I could have picked a number of different books out of my library that are that are more. That are of the present. Mm. Uh, but I chose these uh, these ones which have an historical connections because people tend to forget. Right. Or, or else they never knew. They never knew that a lot of this stuff was going on. Um,
0: well, I think particularly maybe some of the younger feminists today, um, there's so much emphasis on the here and now and what is important to them well, that sometimes when you're young, the history is forgotten.
1: Do. Sure, yeah. that's what you do when you're young. You, you can't help it. It is your reality. You're immersed in it. Um, it's it's right up right up against your face, but um, people who are having difficulties in it um, might find it useful to go back in time and see that other people had difficulties too. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they accomplished things. Yes, which is excellent advice and and very
0: heartening, I think, to know if one is um, struggling at the moment, particularly. Um, And finally, Margaret, uh, can I ask you to name a woman whom you admire? And again, that's a tricky question to make you choose one, but you could
1: probably have two or three in there if you wanted. Yeah, I'm going to throw in a few. I've just been talking to Greta Thunberg a female person. Oh, uh, hi, brilliant. Yeah, so we so she just put out a big letter addressed to the uh European Union telling them to get serious about climate change. Yes. Um and for a, a person of such a young age she has accomplished a huge amount and she and her movement will have to keep accomplishing because unless Uh, we do something about this really serious problem that politicians can't seem to come to grips with in any serious way, Uh, all of these other issues will be moot Mm -hmm. because we won't be here. So it's that serious. So that is uh, my number one choice of today. And then I'll pick another person who is a writer so Ursula K. Le Guin, an old pal of mine, unfortunately, um, no longer with us. I ended up writing two obituaries um, about her for two different newspapers. I had to make them different. <laughs> <laughs> One of them on a plane. Oh uh, yes, and pe- people die when you're not expecting them to. So of course, then you just have to you have to delve in. Oh mm-hmm. uh, yes, and her latest book of of essays, or her last book of essays called No Time to Spare. She's got some very good advice in it. Um, In particular, she has an excellent essay on anger and what you can do with anger. So, basically, she says, you know, yes, there's all these reasons for being angry, but if if that's all you do with your anger, it will just fester. So, she sees anger more as a motivating fuel for accomplishing actual things in the real world. Mm -hmm. Very important. The younger, younger generation, so the the, uh, under-20s, the under-25s, they are there. They are doing the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that's accomplishing things in the real world. Uh, Greta is doing real things in the real world she's, and she is quite angry as you've probably seen her being angry uh, she has a she has a very terrifying teenage anger face <laughs> <laughs> but she's channeling the anger yeah. for such a good and yes she is so she's using the anger as fuel so use the anger as fuel to um, to promote real real change in the real world Mm. But again, make sure that you're angry about something that's true. So do the due diligence. Mm.
0: And Le Guin, obviously you say you were, you were friends of yours, um, but also I presume she was a sort of influence on your writing and something that um, affected you and what you've written over the years.
1: I was a, I was a reader of hers, but she wrote real sci-fi and real fantasy, which, which I kind of don't. Uh, not because I don't like it; I do like it. I, it's another of my guilty pleasures. I roll around and it. Ask me anything about Lord of the Rings, uh, <laughs> uh, but I I can't write it. You know, just not good at dragons. Uh, where she has got really the best dragons, I would say. In the in the dragon contest, the dragons of her in the Wizard of Earthsea are the best dragons. So. Um, uh, so she could do that, and I cannot. Um, but um I certainly read her with great pleasure. Mm.
0: Well, thank you so much, Margaret Atwood. That has been a real pleasure talking to you today. Uh thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Margaret Atwood, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture.